Open with me to Matthew chapter 6. And we will continue our series through the Sermon on the Mount. Some of you may be familiar with the name Charles Spurgeon. And Charles Spurgeon was a pastor in the 1800s, and he had a big ministry. He was known as the Prince of Preachers, is what a lot of people will call him. And he was a fantastic preacher. And so I read years ago a story about some people who were interested in hearing Spurgeon preach. They wanted to be at his church and to hear him preach in person. So they traveled however far it was, and they got to his church. And as someone who's enamored with the pastor, they hung around after the service. They were kind of interested to see if maybe they could meet Spurgeon. And so they did, and he noticed that he, had, he did not recognize these people. He introduced himself, told them a little bit about the church, and then asked them if they would like a tour of the church. And they were thrilled. They were excited. And so he showed them some of the different aspects of the church and some of the different, his office and things like that. And then he said, but now I want to show you the most important part of the church, the boiler room. And he took them down into the basement of the church and he said, here is where the church is powered because here is where every Sunday people get on their knees and they pray while I'm up there preaching. Spurgeon believed that his success in ministry was not his ability to communicate. It was not his awesome ability to communicate with someone, but, but rather his power and his effectiveness in ministry was directly related to believers crying out to God, relying on him in prayer. And all throughout church history, and I hope all throughout your experience in church, you've experienced the same. That church is not successful based on who is preaching on a Sunday morning. Church is successful based on whether or not we are relying on the Lord in prayer. And here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has taught his followers a lot of things already about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. What does it mean to follow him? And now he comes to the topic of prayer. And Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. Now, I've been given just verses 9 through 15 of chapter 6, but that's hard to not also bring in the context. So I know Robbie preached on uh, the earlier verses two weeks ago, but we need to recap them. We need to revisit it because we need to be reminded the context as Jesus gives us this example prayer. So look with me back at verse 5. This is Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. So from the beginning, we, we see he's comparing the way hypocrites pray to the way his disciples should pray, okay? So he says, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Again, verse seven, he says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. He says, do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. And then we come to our verses for tonight. 
So just a few observations. He's showing the disciples, or rather he's reminding the disciples how the, the hypocrites pray. You have seen them pray like this. Now remember, throughout this whole sermon, he's been putting the hypocrites or the scribes and the Pharisees on blast, has he not? He's saying, you have heard that this was taught, but this is what I say to you. You have heard, but I say. You have heard, but I say. He's correcting where these teachers have gone away from Scripture, and he's bringing it back to Scripture. And now he's saying, you have seen how they pray, but that's not how my disciples pray. One of my favorite lines in, the, in these few verses is, is verse 8. Do not be like them. You see how they pray, but that is not how you should be praying. He says two specific things. They're praying to be seen by others, so they're probably not at all praying at all when they're alone. They're praying in a setting like this in church where they're saying you know, big, elaborate prayers, and you all would think the person saying that must be real spiritual. That's one of the problems. But he says the other problem is they're heaping up empty phrases because they think that they'll be heard for their many words. And so it seems like they're just maybe memorizing these long prayers that they think have significance. And all they're doing is just repeating words. And Jesus says, do, do not be like them. But then he says, and we get to our verses for tonight. In verse nine, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So this is how Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. Now before we get into the specific details of this example prayer, I want to make just two observations. The first is what Jesus says before this in verse 9. He says, pray then like this. He does not say, pray this. And it's important that we understand that or that we notice that. Because Jesus is not saying, just simply repeat these words and that's how my disciples pray. He says, pray like this. I know at some point, maybe all of us have said verbatim the Lord's Prayer. Maybe you've heard people do it. I've seen it a lot in sports where a sports team will get together and they will all recite the Lord's Prayer. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. But Jesus' intention was not for us to memorize a few lines and that's the only way that we pray. Or those are the only things we say when we pray. Jesus was not giving us, hey, this is the prayer He's saying, no, pray like this. Pray these types of topics. Pray over these specific areas. Okay, so that's the first observation. But the second, notice how brief it is. This is not a long, drawn-out prayer. Now, I think this is in direct 
contrast with the previous verse, seven, where he says, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Now, we are probably tempted to think longer prayers equals more spirituality equals more effective. And I think Jesus is wanting us to not think that way. I think what Jesus would say to us is, if you have two minutes to pray, pray for two minutes. Not, well, I don't have time for a big, long, lengthy prayer, so I guess it's not even worth it. Our prayers can absolutely be brief, they can be to the point, and they can still be absolutely effective. I think we all need to hear that tonight. Because I think we're all tempted to think that our short little prayers that perhaps we offer up before we go into a big meeting or into the doctor's office or or wherever it may be, we're tempted to think, oh man, I, I need everyone else at the church praying for me right now. Your short little prayer before you walk in can have just as much effect and power as if you were on your knees praying for a long period of time. Don't think the length of your prayer determines its effectiveness. But now that we've looked at the fact that this is not just a repeat after me type of thing, okay, this is just an example, pray like this, and we've seen that it's brief, let's look at the contents of what Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray. He starts out by saying, our Father in heaven, Jesus wants us to be reminded that God in heaven, who hears our prayers, is a father to us. He's a father to us. He loves us. Any of you who have been a father, you understand that love you feel for your children. I felt that this week as I was thinking about this passage and as as I think about my children. When they cry out, When they ask of me something, it gets my immediate attention. Maybe you've noticed that here at the church. I've been having a conversation with you, and Graham will run up, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. I just naturally give my attention to my child. Maybe that's rude to you, and I apologize. But it's so natural that when our our child that depends on us is calling for us, we hear. We give attention. And Jesus wants us to know that God is not just this abstract force out there that we're talking to and hoping that he hears. He is a father to us. He loves us. He is near to us. And so we should pray as if we are talking to our own father. This is an intimate relationship that we have with God. If you are believing in Jesus, if you truly are a follower of his, then God in heaven is your father just as he is the father of Jesus. We have unique access to him. He says we should address him as our father. But now he also says, hallowed be your name. Now hallowed is an interesting word. We don't use that very often. But it means to be holy or let it be holy. This verse could also be translated, your name be holy. 
And I think this carries with it the idea that while we do approach God as our Father in heaven, an intimate relationship, we can be, we can be close with him, we can be uh, open with him, we also need to approach him with reverence. Because he is holy, holy, holy. He is different. He is set apart. He is unique. And so there's a sense in which, yes, he is our Father, and we can come to him with anything that burdens us, anything that we have on our hearts. But we also need to be reminded that we are approaching the creator of the universe, the Holy One. Now, I think there's two aspects to this. I think we need to approach God with awe and reverence, your name be holy, but also I believe it has to do with the way that we live. Because there's a way that you and I can live as followers of Jesus that our life says something about God's character. If people know you are a follower of Jesus, what do they think about God based on how you live? And I think there's an aspect here where we need to be praying that God's name would be seen as holy based on how I live as a follower of his. We should approach God as our Father, but with awe and reverence as the Holy One who created the universe. And we should be asking God to help our lives reflect His holiness. I hope that you all desire that. I hope you want your life to reflect the fact that the God you say you serve is holy, holy, holy. Now he says, verse 10, your kingdom come. Now a lot of people think that your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven go together. And I think they do go together, but they could also be separated. Here's why. Your kingdom come. Now remember, we're at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. And what we're going to see throughout the whole gospel is that Jesus is inaugurating the kingdom of God. And John the Baptist makes this clear. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. John the Baptist knows Jesus is teaching us that he is uh, the king of a new kingdom. He is establishing his kingdom. And I believe Jesus is teaching us that we as his followers should be praying that God's kingdom would continue to come as it has already begun. Now, there are two senses that we can look at the kingdom. That it's already here because Jesus has established it, but we haven't yet realized it in its fullest sense. There's still sin in the world. There's still problems that we, that we realize. But in theology, you'll, 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 hear people read, you'll hear people talk about this as the already but not yet. Jesus has already inaugurated his kingdom. It's real. It's here. But it is not fully been brought to completion. But Jesus is teaching us that his disciples should be praying that his kingdom continue to come. Now, what does that mean? I think it means that God continues to work in the hearts of people who are not currently believing. We need to be praying for the salvation of other people. We all have friends that weren't at church this morning. We all have friends that probably do not claim to believe in Jesus as Lord. 
And Jesus is saying we need to be praying that God would continue expanding his kingdom on earth. And, And I believe that this brings with it this idea that he's gonna use us to do it. We need to be praying that God will do it because we all know that we cannot save anybody. We can get a whole bunch of people in a church, but we can't make anybody's heart new. God is the one who does that. So Jesus is teaching his followers that we need to be praying that God would continue to expand his kingdom, your kingdom come. But then the second half of verse 10, he says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I believe Jesus is teaching that we need to be praying that God's will is the one that our will submits to. Because all of us have a different will. We have a different desire. We have different goals in mind for life in general, perhaps for our career, perhaps for our family, perhaps for the church. But we need to be praying and asking that God's will would be done over our will. More importantly than what I want, God, what do you want? What do you want for First Baptist Church Fairdale? It's more important than what I want for First Baptist Fairdale. So Jesus is is teaching us to pray that God's will would be done on earth the way it is in heaven. God's will in heaven is, is not contested whatsoever. What God decrees happens. What God says goes. And he's teaching us as his followers to be praying the same, that God's will would be done on earth over our will. Now notice, we're only three petitions really into the prayer and, and really not one of them has been about us yet. Have you noticed that? In verse nine, hallowed be your name. In verse 10, your kingdom come. In verse 10 also, your will be done. Now I think what happens a lot of times when we pray, and I know I'm, I'm guilty of this also, I start praying and immediately start asking God for things that concern me. Lord, I pray that you would be with my family and that you would you know, help this situation in my life and that you would be uh, with the health of this person that I love and that I care for. And I think Jesus is teaching his disciples that yes, we're gonna see in these next few things that we need to be praying for ourselves and our own things that we need. But more importantly than that, we need to be praying for the will of God. We need to be praying for the salvation of souls and we need to be praying that God would be seen as holy based on how we as his followers live. He then, in verse 11, gets into specifics for for you and for me. He says, in verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Jesus is teaching us that we, for our physical lives, need to be dependent on God. We live in a really unique time in history. All of us probably have plenty of food stored up for maybe a week. We could probably survive without going to the grocery store an entire week. Or maybe, if we're, if we're real stingy, we could maybe even stretch it out for two weeks. We have an abundance 
for the vast majority of history, people have not lived in that way. People perhaps have enough food for today, let alone tomorrow. Some people struggle to have enough food for today, for right now. I don't know if you follow global news, but in the country of Yemen, there is a massive famine happening. It is very, very bad. People are dying daily because they don't have food to eat. Jesus is teaching his disciples that on a daily basis, we need to be depending on God to provide for us. Sometimes that's hard for us to fathom because we feel so self-sustainable with the way that we live every day. But Jesus is teaching his disciples dependence on God for everything, for, for our daily bread. Lord, help me survive today. Verse 12, now he says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now Luke also has a version of the Lord's Prayer. And in Luke's version, he says, forgive us our sins as we also have forgiven those who are indebted to us. Now I think sins is the, the right understanding here. I don't want to say that this word is interpreted incorrectly. I don't know the, the language that well. But it seems and that Matthew makes it clear, verses 14 and 15, that what he has in mind is our sins. And so here, finally, we're getting towards the end of the prayer, and now Jesus is teaching us that we need to be praying for forgiveness also. Forgiveness of our sins. But notice there's a condition to it. He says, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Notice Jesus is saying, all right, pray to God that he will forgive you of your sins to the extent that you forgive others that have sinned against you. That's pretty bold. That's pretty bold to pray. Jesus is teaching us that if we don't extend forgiveness to those who have sinned against us, why would God extend forgiveness to us who has sinned against him? That's a strong teaching. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. I want to ask you tonight, do you readily offer forgiveness to those who have sinned against you? Are you quick to hold a grudge? Are you quick to hold it over someone's head to try and get something? Or are you quick to extend forgiveness to someone who has wronged you? Jesus says, we need to ask God for forgiveness. But we also need to be reminded that if we are not a person who extends forgiveness to others, that's evidence that we ourselves have not felt or experienced the forgiveness that God extends to us. You see, when we feel, when we experience the forgiveness that God extends to us for our sins against him, it will naturally happen that you will be a person who then extends forgiveness to others who have sinned against you. The two go hand in hand. 
They can't really be separated. But then finally, Jesus says in verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now the word temptation is is kind of a, should jar our memory. Now we've just been studying through the Sermon on the Mount, so we started in chapter five. But if you are reading Matthew's gospel starting in chapter one, what you'll see in chapter four is Jesus tempted in the wilderness. And Satan comes and brings these three different temptations and tries to get Jesus to take the bait, but Jesus does not. Jesus successfully avoids sinning, not avoids, has victory over sinning, over this temptation. And now in verse 13, he says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's interesting that he says, lead us not into temptation. It's almost as if he's saying, God might lead you into temptation, so pray that he doesn't. But remember, in chapter four, it says that Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, was led into the wilderness. God might lead you in a place where you may experience temptation. Now James, chapter one, is very clear that no temptation is from God. God does not tempt anyone with evil. He doesn't. But he may lead you into a place where you will be tempted. Just as Jesus was tempted. And Jesus is saying, we need to pray and ask God that he would not lead us into temptation, but that if he does, that he would deliver us from evil. Now, in verse 12, 11, sorry, Give us this day our daily bread. It seems that Jesus is teaching us that we need to be dependent on God for our physical needs. Daily, we need to be depending on God for our physical needs. And now in verse 13, he seems to be teaching us that we need to be also dependent on God for our spiritual needs. As much as we need food and clothing and water, we need deliverance from temptation. We need God's help in being delivered from evil. We can't do that on our own. What Jesus is teaching his disciples in this example prayer is complete dependence on God himself. You cannot be a follower of Jesus and not be completely depending on God. The two are incompatible. Verse 14 and 15, not part of the prayer, but added by Matthew. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Again, I think this is emphasizing what he says in verse 12. Lord, forgive us of our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. But one last thing I want you to notice about this example prayer. It comes mostly in the second half, verses uh, 11, 12, and 13. Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts 
as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I think there's an expectation by Jesus that his disciples will pray together. Now there is also an expectation that they will pray apart, individually. And that's clear in in the, the preceding verses. He says, but when you pray, go into your room, shut the door and pray that your father who sees in secret will hear. There's absolutely an expectation that we will by ourselves be praying. But Jesus also wants his disciples to pray together. He expects his disciples to come together and to be praying together. This is one of the things that I love about our 24 hours of prayer is that oftentimes what you'll see is the people who sign up for the same hour, sometimes you've got friend groups that like to pray together and that's good, but, that's, but, but sometimes you will see people that perhaps rarely interact on a regular, normal Sunday and they get together in a room and they pray together. They pray for our church, they pray for our pastors, they pray for our community, they pray for a lot of different things. And I think what Jesus has in mind as he's teaching his disciples about prayer is that number one, he's teaching them to be completely dependent upon God for all of the things that we need, both physical needs and spiritual needs. But he's also teaching us that we as disciples together are dependent on God as a whole. We're not living this life as individuals. We're not trying to honor God solely by running this race alone. We're running with one another. And Jesus has an expectation that his disciples will be coming together to pray together, to encourage one another, to continue to point each other to Jesus, to continue to help us depend on God. I hope that you are seeing that through your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, those that you see here tonight or those that you see on a Sunday morning. Are you praying together with one another? Are you depending on God together as a family, as children of the living God? We need to be. Prayer, just as Spurgeon believed, is essential. Spurgeon knew that apart from prayer, it didn't matter how good of a preacher he was. It didn't matter how many people responded to his message. If God was not at work, it didn't mean anything. And I hope you understand that as well. Our church seems to be going well. We seem to be having new people interested. We have people in a new members class every time we have one. But if all of that is a part from us seeking God and trusting him to do the work in people's hearts, it doesn't mean anything. We as his disciples must be completely dependent on him for all things. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the Sermon on the Mount. We thank you that you taught your disciples how to pray. And that in teaching us how to pray, You taught us that we are to have kingdom priorities before we have personal 
priorities. God, we ask that you would help us as a church to understand the importance of our relying on you, both individually and also as a congregation. We thank you for teaching us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.